The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at what's ahead in the markets. It's a big week for tech earnings. We'll also get the final read on third quarter GDP on Thursday. We've got the 10-year Treasury yield nearly hitting 5% this morning, and we awoke to news of a huge deal in the oil patch. Chevron is buying Hess for $53 billion in stock. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, my guest today is Barron's Associate Editor, Andrew Barry. And we'd like to acknowledge and thank the sponsor of today's program, Nuveen, a global asset manager. You can find out more at nuveen.com. Welcome, Andrew. Glad to have Hi. you back on Barron's Live. Glad to be here. Excellent. So let's start with a look at Chevron's deal for Hess. This follows about two weeks ago. Exxon's move to buy Pioneer Natural Resources. That was the biggest oil merger in years. So I have two questions for you. Why suddenly are we seeing two mega mergers in the oil industry? And is Chevron paying a fair price for Hess? What's your view? Well, I think it goes back to the old saying, it's easier to, it's cheaper to drill for oil on the New York Stock Exchange than to find it in the ground. And I think uh, it's not easy finding big sources of oil and natural gas right now, given resource nationalism, climate activism, and other factors. And I think... uh, both uh, Chevron and Exxon are, are flush now with cash. I mean, flush with earnings, and they want to, And they also see um, a, a future for the oil and gas industry. It's probably going to be lasting decades. Is the world is going to need uh, ener- traditional fossil fuels energies for uh, quite some time? That to me is the most interesting aspect of these two mergers: how the view on demand for oil has pivoted. I mean, look, I think it's not really pivoted too much. I think, you know, oil demand uh, may, is, may continue to grow for another decade or so. It's about 100 million barrels of oil uh, a day of demand now, and it might be a peak at 110 before it starts to decline. Natural gas demand continues to increase partly uh, because of its use in um, electricity generation. So the age of fossil fuels is far from uh, fading. And that's the message here. So let's take a closer look at the Chevron deal. What do you think of the price for Hess? Well, I think it was a relatively small premium. And I think it's a little bit surprising. It's only a couple percent premium above uh, Hess's share price on Friday. I think uh, X, I mean, Chevron felt they were getting a pretty good deal here. And um, I, I mean, I think Hess was happy to do the deal at, at a small premium. They're getting all stock, which means that they're, they're, it's very favorable from a tax standpoint, particularly for the Hess family which controls about 10% of the stock and probably has a very low cost basis in it. And also they get a bigger, more diversified company. I think it's a, it's a favorable deal for Hess right now. All right. And what was driving this deal? We, we talked earlier today about big oil fines, I guess, off the coast of Guyana. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Hess's major asset is a 30% stake in what's one of one of the best oil fields in the whole world, which is off the coast of Guyana, about a, a 10 billion barrels of oil equivalent or, or more 
Exxon is uh, interesting enough to lead on that. They're the uh, project manager and they have the majority stake in it. So it'd be interesting now you'd be Exxon and Chevron essentially uh, collaborating on the development of this uh, giant oil field. Big news today in the market. So let's go on to asset managers. We'll leave the oil patch. You well, I, I, I just point out, uh, Lauren, that I think yeah. um, investors were kind of somewhat underwhelmed by this deal from a Chevron standpoint. It's an all-stock deal. That means there's uh, they, uh, Chevron could have easily done a cash-and-stock deal. They're being ultra-conservative right now. Uh, they have very little net debt on the balance sheet. Chevron stock is down about 2 or 3% today. And uh, I think... Uh, Investors kind of view this as not a must-have deal for Chevron. There are no obvious synergies here, which means that there's the one benefit is less antitrust scrutiny. But I'm not quite sure whether investors felt this was kind of the best use of uh, all that uh, currency, meaning uh, Chevron stock that they're issuing for this deal. What do you think they would have preferred a higher dividend? No, I, I just no, I don't know whether people felt Chevron needed to do this deal. I think Chevron, there's been some concern about Chevron. They've got a big uh, oil field or interest in a field in Kazakhstan, and that's in a tough part of the world. And I think that's been one contributor to its underperformance relative to Exxon in the last year or so. So um, I think this, uh, this, this essentially gives uh, Chevron a greater exposure in, a, I think, a more friendly part of the world. All right. That, that may explain it right there. So let's talk about the asset managers next. You had a bullish story in this weekend's Barron's about asset management stocks. We're talking about stocks like BlackRock and Alliance Bernstein, T. Rowe Price, and quite a few others. Most of them are quite undervalued. Investment flows have been departing. And for those who missed the story, what is the bullish case for the industry? And do you have any favorites in the group? Essentially, the traditional asset managers were once in favor a decade or so ago, but they've fallen from favor in the last, uh, you know, last five or five years or so. Is flows have basically been uh, been difficult. Traditional uh, actively managed mutual funds have been seeing outflows as investors favor ETFs and uh, other passive vehicles, and so uh, it's been a tough couple of years. The industry is quote unquote derated in Wall Street parlance, meaning the multiples have declined. I mean, you have many stocks now trading for ten times earnings. And uh, you know, five percent plus dividend yields. T. Rowe Price, Franklin, and Invesco all yield around five percent. And the industry leader is BlackRock, which is about nine trillion or so of assets under management. It's the leader. It's got the best ETF platform in iShares, and uh, even it's trading for a for a lowish multiple for itself, which is around seventeen times this year's earnings, and with uh, about a three percent dividend yield. So what do you think could turn the tide for these companies? Well, it's unclear what the cows is going to be. I mean, third quarter earnings are coming out and they're generally not great. But uh, I, one silver lining could be that the sell off in the bond market could essentially could ultimately lead to greater investment in bonds by individuals who are now enamored of cash yielding 5%. But bonds across the spectrum are, are getting much more attractive. And you're seeing a bit of a rally today in the bond market. Interestingly enough, keyed off some comments by Bill Ackman, who uh, the hedge fund manager, who had been very uh, publicly bearish on bonds a couple of months ago. And he basically covered his short position on bonds saying that uh, he thinks maybe the worst may be over. So uh, interesting enough, Ackman's having a positive impact today. But if investors move into bonds, I mean, treasuries yield around 5%, mortgage security six and a half to seven, junk bonds, 9%, preferred stock seven. That's a nice premium above the inflation rate now running around 3%. So bonds are finally a decent asset class. And many of these managers, including Franklin and, um, 
and Invesco, as well as BlackRock, have big exposure to the bond market. And flows have not been great into bond funds because returns have been poor. But the key thing in bonds is what the go forward returns are going to be, not what they've been in the past. And if you start at it with, with higher yields, you basically have a much better chance of getting good returns. That's a good point. So we'll come back to the bond market later and some opportunities there. But first, I want to talk about Goldman. It's a different kind of asset manager. It's actually a bank. You've also been bullish on Goldman, even though the company has suffered from diminished deal activity. There's been management turmoil and the company made a bad bet on consumer finance, which it is now mostly unwinding. So what do you see in Goldman that other investors don't? Well, I think the, a lot of the bad news is already discounted now in Goldman stocks. Goldman stock price. Stock price is around a little, a little above 300 right now. It's below its book value, a little bit below book value right now, which has historically been a pretty good entry point for Goldman. It's generally earned, its returns are pretty poor right now, right, about around 7% or so return on equity, which is about half their target. Uh, JP Morgan is in the high teens right now on that metric. So they have some work to do to boost returns, but I mean, it's, it's almost a free quote unquote call option on um, better uh, M&A activity, better investment banking activity. And they also have a pretty good asset management company, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. They're trying to build up their alternatives business, which means trying to get more uh, outside investors to invest in private equity, real estate, and other alternative funds. And that's been a big focus. I think there's been an enormous amount of focus on the um, consumer issue. They clearly have not done as well as they hope. They're exiting some of those key businesses there. They still have some exposure. Some people think they actually may get out of it, get out of it entirely. But it's been a couple billion dollar uh, hit to them for a, for a company that's got a, you know, a pretty big market value. So the, the, it's been more of a, of a PR problem and an and a image problem than I think a financial issue for Goldman Sachs. So you think investors might have overreacted to that? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, the stock is trading below book value. It's trading for around eight or nine times next year's projected earnings. The dividend yields around 3%. They've historically been very good risk managers, unlike some other banks like uh, Bank of America, which have some big losses in bond portfolios. I mean, Bank of America's bond losses were about $130 billion on a mark-to-market basis and a key part of its um, bond portfolio at the end of the third quarter. Goldman has almost none of that. It's a, it's a clean balance sheet. It's well-run. You know, there's been some management turmoil. There's been criticism internally of David Solomon, who's become a bit of a lightning rod, but uh, he seems to be shoring up support internally. There was thinking that he might be gone by the end of the year, that uh, he could be forced out. It's now looking, I think, uh, better that than That doesn't he seem likely anymore. Yeah, it seems less likely. It's hard to know the internal politics and what's going on internally at Goldman Sachs. He clearly wants to stay. He clearly wants to, um, you know, write the ship, and uh, which is not really listing, but basically, I mean, show better returns. I mean, Goldman needs to show better returns, and and uh, and I think he, he he's determined to basically be around and uh, hopefully help make that happen. All right, let's talk about banks in general for a moment. The big banks have reported in the past week or so. What's your take overall based on earnings this year, this quarter? Well, I, mean, I think the earnings have been kind of mixed. Higher rates are kind of hurting them in the sense that uh, depositors are basically uh, not thrilled by, you know, the very low interest rates are being offered on bank deposits and are moving out. And I think the banks are not seeing the kind of you know, earnings increases or, and uh, that investors had hoped. The, the group is very much out of favor, down around 25 or so percent this year on average, and the regional banks are down even more so. I think uh, people also worried about you know potential credit issues going forward if the economy weakens. So it's been it's, it's been it's been a, it's been a tough group. I mean, some of the stand the standouts been J.P. Morgan, which is executed. I mean, the best among the uh, 
among the major banks. I mean, Jamie Dimon runs a great operation there. He has the best management team probably in the uh, in the banking industry, and it's showing that he's outmaneuvered Brian Moynihan. They avoided some of the big bond losses that the Bank of America did. I mean, it's kind of in the stock to some degree, but um, clearly Diamond is showing why at 67 or so right now that uh, he's the best big bank CEO in the country. And he's, he may be around for another couple more years, probably until around 2026 as CEO of JP Morgan. It might stick around even longer than past 2026 as chairman. And uh, investors are pretty happy about that because uh, he, he, he runs a tight ship and really understands every aspect of the business. And I think uh, that, I mean, that's apparent relative to what's been happening over at Bank America, where the stock has been really struggling and uh, uh, with, uh, with Moynihan under, um, at the helm. Although he did a good job for a long time and was well thought of. Yeah, he was. He, I mean, he he was well thought of. Their whole strategy, responsible growth, uh, you know, was, looked well. I mean, they have a focus. They have got a bit of a focus on wealth management with Merrill, and that's been successful. And uh, but I think the, the, these bond losses have really been uh, a, a problem for them. The bank tends to downplay the whole issue, but investors see a hundred thirty billion dollar mark to market loss on a bond portfolio, which doesn't have to be reflected in capital based on accounting rules in the bank. Bank of America says they're going to work through this over time, but it's going to take a long time for this portfolio to really, which is about $600 billion, to really you know, get, I mean, get much lower. So uh, we'll see what happens on that front. I mean, Bank of America stock has been depressed. It's been the worst, one of the worst performers among the big banks, even though the regionals have done even worse. So speaking of cheap stocks and under underappreciated industries, that would also describe the packaged foods industry. They got a bump from the COVID pandemic when everybody cooked at home. But this year, they're lagging the S&P by maybe the biggest margin in 20 years. You've written a lot about these stocks, and they are favored for their dividends. They're defensive in nature. But even those attributes haven't impressed investors. So why do you like the sector? Well, I mean, what's been going on is a lot of dividend-oriented sectors in the market, utilities, consumer stocks, banks, have gotten to be somewhat less favored by investors, both for fundamental reasons also is interest rates have risen, short-term rates, you can get 5% on money market funds right now, or 3% dividend yield on a consumer stock, which looked great when uh, rates were zero, it doesn't look quite as, uh, you know, as a standout uh, dividend right now when, uh, you know, short-term rates are 5%. It looks like the Fed may be on hold for longer, and that, which means that you could be getting, you know, four to five or I mean percent uh, short-term rates for, you know, in another year or two. So uh, that's part of the backdrop. I think the Ozempic impact has, has been hurting some of the food and uh, the uh, beverage stocks. Ozempic effect, meaning that investors are concerned that while that these, these new diet drugs, which are really very effective as they become more pervasive and widespread and millions of Americans begin to uh, take them, that their appetites will be suppressed and they're going to be eating less junk food, less and less uh, um, you know, snacks and other things that have been a major focus of the food industry. I would say, though, the stocks are pretty inexpensive right now. They're historically cheap. In many, many cases, they're around 10 times earnings for companies like like Kraft and others. And uh, even the big names, uh, some of the better companies like PepsiCo and Coca-Cola are, are trading closer to 20 times earnings, which for which is not a low multiple, but it's relatively low for them. And they have about 3-ish percent dividend yields. And uh, if you ask the companies, they think that uh, their their outlooks are somewhat undiminished. I mean, Pepsi has big exposure to snack foods. It's about two-thirds of its business via Frito-Lay. Coke is more of a beverage play, mostly international. So it's kind of probably less exposed to the Ozempic impact because much of it, it of its exposure is overseas. And I think Ozempic is going to be going to take 
a good deal longer to kind of become entrenched overseas. So I think you, you've got some interesting situations right now. I would also call out a spinoff, a Kellogg, um, the, the um, cereal company and, and snack food company about a month or so ago, um, did a spin-off of its cereal business. It's called uh, Kellogg, and um, the, remain the remainder of the company was renamed Kellanova and kept the K ticker. The new ticker for the cereal business is called is uh, KLG, Kosher Larry Good, and um, and that's been a very depressed stock. It's traded very poorly since it uh, since the spin-off. Kellogg is the uh, cereal company. Trades for only around seven times this year's earnings. The dividend yield has not been set, but given the indications from the company, it could be six percent plus. They're going to be uh, reporting earnings in the next couple of weeks. We'll have a better read on that. The problem at, at the cereal company Kellogg has been that there's a big investment program ongoing at the company. They want to improve their manufacturing supply chain. That's going to be a few hundred million dollars in the next couple of years. And so uh, it's kind of a show me story in what's become a tough category. Cereal demand has not been growing. It's been kind of flat to down the last couple of years as uh, Americans choose other breakfast uh, uh, meal options, whether it be uh, bars, eggs, uh, um, and and bagels, <laughs> bagels, and, and and other things, and meat like meats and things. I mean, so uh, and many many Americans are not eating at home as much, and it's harder to have cereal on the go. And it's not quite as good an on the go breakfast as many Americans now want. But the stock uh, Kellogg is, is is around ten dollars a share under a billion dollar market value, which is incredible that a company with about 3 billion in sales and used to be one of the best businesses in the whole packaged food industry is basically out of favor. But uh, it's number two cereal company in the country behind General Mills. And it's got you know well-known brands, um, including Special K, Raisin Brand, uh, Frosted Flakes is basically their top seller and uh, Fruit Loops are, are, are also very popular. So do you have a favorite sector among some of these out of place sectors or out of favor sectors? No, I mean, I think I think I think there's opportunity. I think, you know, utility stocks have gotten really have gotten hit hard. And you can I mean, one can look there. I think dividend yields are pushing up or close to around four percent right there. Right there. And I think the outlook for you for electric utilities is pretty good as they spend to uh, on their transmission networks and, and also on, on renewable power. I mean, the industry sees itself in probably its best position to grow in the last couple of decades looking at the next five or 10 years, they build out uh, and harden their, their networks and uh, also uh, build out uh, renewable power, which admittedly is getting more difficult to build right now than in the past. But uh, it, it, the, the outlook for growth I mean, still looks pretty good for the utility industry. You're talking about mid to high single digit growth in earnings, which is not great, but um, they're, I mean, they're, it's a relatively stable business because they have regulated rates of return, they're, which are protected by regulators. And so, um, there isn't a lot, there isn't much downside to earnings in terms of much earnings risk, at least for many of the companies right now. All right, let's go back to bonds for a moment. Then we'll take some listener questions. We have quite a few. So I want to look at some of the fixed income categories you've written about lately. Closed end muni funds is one. They are trading at the biggest discount to net asset value in 18 years. Why should an investor consider them now? And are they a good bet for a particular kind of investor? Well, closed-end mini funds are basically um, uh, they're basically traded on, on on the NYSE. They're traded like stocks, and the yields are in like in the kind of the four to five percent area mostly. The discounts are wide at often fifteen percent plus to the net asset values of their portfolios. And the problem has been that. Um, muni bond prices have uh, have fallen with treasuries this year as interest rates have risen. They're leveraged. So basically, you have a leveraged impact on the uh, common shares. And so that magnifies the losses. And also, you're seeing much sharper 
uh, increase in short-term rates, which are now around 5%. So the cost of financing those, that leverage position has been going up. So they're getting squeezed right now. And that it's, it's like a double or triple whammy right now affecting them. They're, I mean, they're historically cheap right now. The dividend yields are not super high. But if you get a rally in the muni market, I mean, these, uh, these stocks could do well because they're basically levered plays in the muni market right now. And that, that's just one area of the bond, right, bond market right now that's out of favor. You also mentioned tips. You did a story on tips a few weeks ago. That's Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. I noticed the journal followed you with a positive story this weekend. Tips are hard to understand and the tax treatment is complicated, but what is the bullish case for them? Well, the bullish case for tips is right now, these are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which basically give you a return tied to the inflation rate plus a bonus yield, which is called the real rate. And that's now around two and a half percent. So you're getting essentially getting inflation, which is now three plus two and a half, which could be a five percent plus yield on the on the on these securities. And they also um, you know, essentially insulate you from uh, it means inflation risk. It's one of the few asset classes that if inflation rises. You I mean your, your return is going to rise to reflect that. They've been out of favor because, you know, the bond market's been out of favor. And um, and, and and so um, it, it's, it's been a tough year. But on a go forward basis, I mean, a two and a half percent real yield on a government backed security is actually a reasonably attractive rate right now. And uh, investors ought to consider you can buy individual bonds or some some complicated tax issues and with them involving phantom income, but tips um, ETFs don't have this quite the same issue. You can you can buy the there are a whole bunch of uh, ETFs. There's a, the ticker one of the biggest ones is ticker TIP. There's a ticker STIP, Sam Taylor, Ida, uh, Phosphate, and that is um, a shorter uh, duration, a shorter maturity um, uh, iShares fund. The tip is the longer maturity one. So depending on your risk tolerance, uh, you can buy the shorter one or the longer one. I mean, Vanguard has, has a big tips mutual fund, as well, a tips ETF as well. So there are many ways to play it right now, and you can buy them directly from the treasurer if you want, or else you can buy the... Um, Savings bonds, the inflation-protected uh, savings bonds, uh, the I-bonds, which are offer a similar play right now. You'll be getting a new rate coming up in the next week or so. What do you think that will be? Um, my guess is probably around, you know, five-ish percent right now, which uh, uh, which uh, I, there, there's a nice tax deferral feature on I-bonds. And some of the problem with I-bonds is that you only buy 10000 a year. You have to buy them pretty much directly from the Treasury. And apparently their website's not great. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not – it's it's – not for people who want to put a lot of money to work because you can only buy 10,000 a year, but you can buy 10,000 for each of your members of your family. And uh, it looks like the real rate is going to be, could be, you know, I mean, over 1%, maybe one and a half percent. And you're able to, do, to, to defer income taxes on um, the I bonds until maturity, which gives them an IRA like quality. You're able to have the compound interest, which is a nice feature, which you really can't get on, uh, on any other, uh, on any other taxable bond right now. So I think of you as a bottom-up stock picker, but I wonder if you have a top-down view of rates and inflation, where these things are headed. No, I, I don't have a strong view on, 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 I mean, on inflation and interest rates. I think rates have moved up very sharply. The 10-year Treasury hit 5% today. I think it's, it's backed off, partly on the Ackman comments. It's around 490 right now. I mean, I think you know, bonds are starting to compensate you uh, for uh, – the inflation risk right now and muni bonds around four treasuries five preferred around seven junk bonds around nine um and mortgage securities around six and a half or seven so those are those are i mean the best yields in 15 years and unless you see a big reacceleration of inflation I, mean, I think you know bond bonds may be a good asset class is concerned about the federal deficit which is ballooning and doesn't look like uh 
it's 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 intractable at about a two trillion dollar annual um, annual amount every year, which is a lot of debt for the for the for the U.S. to finance, even with the economy doing relatively well. And you know, Ackman was talking about a potential weakness in the economy, which he thinks may be uh, brewing beneath the surface. Even though the GDP report for the third quarter we'll be getting out on uh, later this week is supposed to be a pretty strong number, maybe three percent plus. So if you get some weakness in the economy. And um, I mean, the bond markets could 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 really uh, could really move, and because uh, given how sharply uh, in interest rates have increased this year, that'll be something to watch for the fourth quarter for sure. So I want to go to some listener questions, sure. and we'll start with one from Kevin. He wants to know: Has asset pricing, has asset repricing, uh, presumably in equities, discounted the worst of the bond market decline and the rise in rates? That's a very tough question. I mean. I, w- I would think maybe no, but it's interesting that the stock market has been pretty resilient in the face of all the, of the, inc- of the interest rate increases this year. I mean, the S&P is still up around, I guess, 10-ish percent this year. And um, I know other parts of the market are not doing so well. I mean, and the, the stock market seems to do very well on days when the bond market does well. So um, I know the markets may are pretty, uh, are, are taking this in surprising amount of stride right now. But I just wonder whether no longer term of you if rates uh, treasury rates stay here around 5% uh, i mean whether that's going to have i mean a dampening impact on, on the stock market but or the economy looks pretty good earnings uh, outlook looks reasonably good so i think investors are taking comfort from that right now the, I've, been, I've been surprised that stocks haven't sold off more yeah it's been it's been an i mean is 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 it a tell that basically you know that when you get any relief on the interest rate front that the stocks are going to start going to go roaring back to the to the highs i mean so, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see about that. All right. We had a question from Mark. He wants to know, what are the top metrics you use to predict future market direction? Okay. I mean, it, it's really Maybe hard. Maybe not metrics, but what do you look at? Right. I mean, I don't know. You can look, look at the market PE. You can look at the market dividend PE, meaning the price earnings ratio. You can look at the dividend yield. I mean, I mean, earnings outlet, earnings, earnings and interest rates really are, are, the, are the key determinants of that. So, uh, I mean, uh, so those are the, the those are, those are the key things that uh, to pay attention to. Any thoughts about small caps? Are they investable right now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, small caps have really lagged in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and I think they're kind of flattish this year. And uh, I think there's there's concern about that. There are the earnings outlook for them is maybe less robust than for larger companies. They don't have quite the same maybe pricing power or or market positions. And but you know, it's, it's kind of reflected in valuations, which are kind of. Uh, Below the um, S and P 500, which is now around 17-ish times this um, this year's earnings, and or 18 times, and uh, so uh, it, it, it meets an out of favor asset class. I think there's concern that if the economy does weaken in 2024, that smaller companies are more exposed. But I mean, some of that is, is right now. I mean, in the discount on the stock prices, and you know, you can buy a lot of the private equity is right now. I mean, they're basically what what they do is essentially take private small to mid-sized companies and mm-hmm. essentially buy those companies in the market right now without having to pay a big premium and taking on leverage and uh, that essentially all the and that these PE funds do and uh, take 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 on a good deal of risk. So I, I think I think it's an interesting asset class that investors ought to consider. There's a, the Russell 2000 is is a, there's an ETF for that. There's also an ETF for the S&P uh, small cap index. So those are those are two ways of investors are interested in playing the small cap area. They can do it. Good answer. That was a question from Richard. Okay. We have a question about Apple. What is your take on Apple in the next five quarters or so from FT? 
I, 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 I think Apple is fully priced to even to overpriced right now. I mean, the company is not really growing revenue or earnings much right now. And it's and uh, the stock is not cheap at a close to 30 times this year's earnings. Now, I tend to favor companies like uh, like Alphabet, the parent of Google, which has a somewhat lower P.E. is actually is growing much faster. Microsoft is also has a similar P.E. growing much faster than Apple. I mean, Apple has a halo effect, I think, because of the iPhone and some and their services business. And to some degree, the Berkshire Hathaway stake in the company um, uh, helps out. But to me, uh, it's uh, there. there's not much growth there right now. And uh, it's been hard for them to innovate on the iPhone. And there's real risk in China. I mean, they get about 20% of their revenues from China. It's probably the most exposed of the major tech names to China. Tim, I mean... U.S.-China tensions are on the rise, and that's not good for uh, for for Apple and China exposure. Tim Cook was over there recently, which shows you how worried he is about the market. Mm -hmm. over there. Good point. We have a question from Bob on the outlook for REITs. I mean, I think a REITs have gotten hit hard with interest rates, and I think they're they're they're. I mean, arguably, I mean, discounting um, uh, you know the uh, the the current interest rate backdrop. And I think uh, they're a bit of an inflation hedge. I mean, I think the outlook for many classes of commercial real estate is, is still reasonably good, whether it be apartments, warehouses, even malls have got some life to it. And the battered office sector, I know there might be some, even some life there. I mean, I mean stocks like Boston Properties, Vornado, SL Green. I mean, I tell you, I mean, when, when I commute in from New Jersey um, uh, on, on the trains, I mean, the trains are as full as they've been since, since COVID. I mean, People seem to be getting back to work in Manhattan, I think, into, into other cities as well. Companies want people back, and they're trying to push them back, admittedly, over some objections. But uh, I think you know, I think there may, that these may be a somewhat underappreciated asset class right now. I mean, part of the problem for many of the REITs is that financing costs are going up, and that's a problem particularly for private real estate funds, I mean, which are much more leveraged. I mean, you're talking about 7% financing rates now, if you can get it. In, in, in some asset classes, it's hard to get financing. So... I, I think you know the public REITs have less have, have relatively modest leverage and uh, and some and some of the better assets in the in the whole real estate sector right now. So I agree with you about people coming back to work. Also commuting from New Jersey, it's insane at Penn Station at the end of the day to try to get home. So yeah, I mean, let's in, in terms of REITs, I would just mention if you were interested in apartment REITs, you have companies like Equitable. Um, uh, I mean. Equity residential, uh, you have Avalon Bay, you have Mid-America Apartments. In the, the warehouse sector, you've got Prologis. And in, in the malls, you've got Simon Properties. And so uh, there are, and, and then of course, you can buy the VNQ, which is a Vanguard um, uh, REIT ETF as well, which is a, a broad cross-section uh, and uh, offers a plan, all that. So, so speaking of apartments, there seems to be a boom of apartments in our neck of the woods in Jersey. Is there some sort of overbuilding going on? Let's talk well, about I mean, well, there's concern about that in, in many parts of the country, particularly the Sun Belt, where it's easier to build and where there, where there are fewer zoning restrictions. And Jersey is happening, but it's it's actually it's interesting this year that the better performing apartment yeah. restocks have been the coastal ones, which have been out of favor, partly because of the uh, supply issue. I mean, it's harder to build in places like um, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, Boston. And so uh, the companies are more exposed to that, which include uh, Equity Residential and Avalon Bay have out been outperforming some of the more Sunbelt focused companies. Like, uh, Andrew, like I love that I can ask you anything and you'll have an answer. <laughs> you you definitely cover the market thoroughly. We had a question about Moderna that I wanted to ask you. You've written quite a bit about Moderna. Amira asks, what's the story? Will the company be acquired at some point? 
You know what? It's, it's an interesting question. I've, I've written positively about it. The stock has done poorly since then. The stock's turning around 80 today. I mean, the, the big issue and the big concern is that COVID vaccine demand seems to be really down much more than, than some of the companies are, have had expected. Pfizer, which is, makes a leading uh, COVID vaccine, had a warning recently about uh, both demand for the vaccine and Paxlovid, its um, uh, COVID treatment. Moderna, basically, I mean, almost all their revenues right now come from the COVID vaccine. And so investors are clearly worried about that. But you know, at this point, there's a stocks around 80. I think there's almost half of the market cap is in cash right now. I mean, there's almost $40 a share in cash. And uh, the market cap is down to around about $30 billion right now, Half, almost half of that in cash right now. You're paying not much for the whole franchise. I know the CEO is very bullish on what he thinks is a very powerful uh, mRNA platform for developing new drugs. They've got I don't know, a dozen plus drugs in the pipeline. They're very bullish. They're spending a ton of money on R&D. That's one reason why the company is losing money now, which Wall Street isn't crazy about. You could potentially see an activist get involved here to basically would push them to basically cut expenses and kind of get their acts together. And you could get a potential takeover of this company. I mean, given given its market cap right now, I don't think the company wants to sell at the, given where the stock price is right now. But, uh, you know, companies like CGEM, which is being bought by Pfizer for about $40 billion. And there's, a, I, I'm, in my view, there's a lot more go, going on at, uh, at, uh, at uh, Moderna right now. All right. I, I, I'd also point out BioNTech, which is the other, which is a partner for um, Pfizer. It's a German company. Its stock trades, I guess, I think it's in the $90 to $100 share range. I mean, almost all of its market cap is in cash right now. You're paying very little for the franchise right now. It's one of the most cash-rich companies in the entire world relative to its size. Um, in turn, uh, so BioNTech, I think it's ticker BNTX, Boy Nancy Tom Xylophone. All right. I, I love the way, and what do you call those, the mnemonics when you put together those letters? It's great. All right. Well, thank you, Amira, for that question. Andrew, I am not going to let you go before asking about Berkshire Hathaway. You have covered Berkshire better than I think any reporter out there. How do you size up the stock these days? Well, the stock has come under pressure. It's actually been underperforming the market, I believe, recently. It's it's down about 10% from its high. Uh, and so, um, and that's happened before. I mean, the stock is trading for under 20 times this year's earnings, about 1.4 to 1.5 times book value. It's been hit to some degree. Apple, which is the biggest equity holding at Berkshire, is down from its high, down about $20 from its high. Berkshire owns about 900 million shares, so that's down about you know, about that's about a $20 billion hit for Berkshire. So Bank of America is not create, trading great. It's, and the equity portfolio is not doing great recently, which doesn't help. But the insurance business is doing very well for Berkshire. Berkshire, for instance, made a, made a bet on uh, Florida hurricanes. It provided a lot of uh, coverage for Florida hurricanes um, this season. And it looks like they're going to clean up. They can make a couple billion dollars off that. We'll get some idea when Berkshire reports on uh, in early November, on a Saturday, the first Saturday of November. Berkshire is going to report its third quarter earnings. You could see a pretty strong quarter from the, in the property and casualty business. IG Jane, who's their insurance maven, talked about this at the annual meeting. They can make a couple billion dollars from Florida. I mean, Florida has had some big hurricanes in recent years, but this year has been a very light hurricane season in the United States, despite climate change and other factors that people think are contributing to higher activity. So there's been one storm in Florida was not a big, uh, in terms of insured damages. So Berkshire's going to do well there. It's doing well in some other areas. And, uh, you know, fans of Berkshire say that, uh, the company is well positioned. Warren Buffett is showing no signs of slowing down at age 93. Obviously, he can't run the, the place forever. Um, Greg Abel uh, is the uh, number two and designated successor for him. 
So it'll be interesting to see ultimately what happens with, with that succession. It's going to be complicated, potentially a little bit messy. Who's going to allocate capital there? How, how, how are they going to run the show? There's a huge amount of cash on the balance sheet, close to $150 billion, probably higher in the third quarter. So there's a lot of money that, that he can put to work. He's been pretty conservative about that. So it, it's, it's a, one of the ultimate sleep at night stocks for investors right now. I mean, a lot of cash, strong earnings power, $35 billion plus in earnings power, and, and a stock that has gotten more reasonable as the market's pulled back. Good analysis. I wanted to ask you, Buffett is a big owner of Occidental Petroleum. How do you think he regards the Chevron and Exxon deals? Well, I mean, I think I think he's probably favorable on it. I mean, I think he's been a he's a pretty big holder of Chevron, even though he's been cutting back that stake in recent quarters. They own 20, Berkshire owns about twenty five percent of Oxy. I think you know I, people thought that Chevron met, might might have bought Oxy. There was a little bit of a surprise that they bought Hess rather than Oxy. Um, Chevron made a run at Anadarko Petroleum in 2019. Oxy outbid them. So the thinking was, you know, if Chevron liked Anadarko then, they might like it now inside of uh, inside of Occidental. It would, it would have been an interesting merger. I think he would, Buffett would have been great, would have been really thrilled by it because if they had issued uh, Chevron stock, which is what they did for the Hess deal for Oxy, I mean, he could have swapped his Oxy stock for Chevron, which would have been, I think he would have been thrilled about that. But of course, it didn't happen. Mike Worth, the CEO of, of Chevron, I think felt that they had enough exposure in the Permian where Occidental was strong. They wanted to diversify, uh, do some diversification, and they have this, they're getting that big play uh, in off, off the coast of Guyana. So um, that that that's that's the situation now at Oxy. I mean, Buffett has said that they don't want to own all of Oxy, and so that's one reason why Oxy stock is down today because you you remove two of the potential buyers of the company in Exxon and Chevron, and so it's looking like it'll be independent for at least for the time being. That seems so. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. Thanks for this great analysis. Want to great thank to, our, I, I, it was great to join you, Lauren. Great. I want to thank our listeners, too. I want to thank you for your excellent questions. Come back tomorrow on Barron's Live. Lauren Foster will be talking with Mike Lippert, Portfolio Manager of the Barron Opportunity Fund. They'll be talking about investing in secular growth themes, including artificial intelligence, semiconductors, and electric vehicles. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.